All right, well, good evening once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James, chapter 5? Actually, at the end of chapter 4, James is addressing the godly rich. These would be Christian businessmen, uh, encouraging them not to let their money corrupt their relationship uh, with the Lord by producing within them an arrogant and independent spirit. We looked at that last time, but let's read those verses because they then segue into our study tonight. So uh, James 4, verse 13, James says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. These are obviously business people he's addressing here. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, starting in chapter 5, he turns from the godly rich to the ungodly rich. Maybe some of these were churchgoers. Probably they were. Uh, these were those who had made money their God pretty much. He has some pretty harsh things to say to them. And uh, the language that he uses is very strong, which indicates to me now he has shifted from the godly rich to the ungodly, those that had, make, had made money their God, and were living in such a way that this life was all there is, you know, how the rich tend to do that. This life is all there is. They live like there's nothing after the grave. And uh, so James is addressing these folks. And again, has some pretty strong words of condemnation for them. But let me just say this before we get into the passage. Understand, James is not condemning money in and of itself, nor, listen, is he condemning the hard work that produces success and wealth. Money isn't moral. It isn't immoral. It's amoral. It's neutral, is the idea. Uh, money is not evil in and of itself it's the way we tend to use it and look at it and that's why the bible talks about even though money is amoral it doesn't mean it's without its pitfalls all right starting with a strong love and desire for it that's why paul told timothy young pastor in first timothy 6 he said the love of money not money itself but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So not even Christians are immune from what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of riches. What does that mean? If I just had a little more money, I'd be happy. Uh, that's what they asked John Rockefeller, who was a very wealthy man. And one reporter interviewing him said, Mr. Rockefeller, you've got so much money, you keep working like crazy. I mean, how much money is enough? Just a little more. That's the deceitfulness of riches. That no matter how much I have, just a little more, I'm going to really be happy and fulfilled. And even Christians get sucked into this, as we know from just watching Christian TV. So here's the thing. We've been looking at James as he's been trying to um, give us uh, the qualities that make up uh, a mature believer in Christ. That's been his theme throughout the entire epistle. All right, Looking at the characteristics of a mature believer believer here's another one a mature believer is listen they never let their money control them a mature believer never lets 
their money control them. You know, there are many wealthy people in the world. In fact, many uh, who are believers, I should say, uh, many in the Bible. We see guys like Abraham, Job, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, Lydia of Thyatira, just to name a few wealthy people the Bible talks about. But they were godly people. They never let their wealth control them. They never let their wealth become a god in their life, you see. And uh, even though the Bible doesn't say specifically on all of them, I'm convinced they uh, kept their money in perspective, proper perspective, and used it for the glory of God. I mean, God does bless some with money. Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, uh, Who gives you the power to get wealth? It's, isn't it I the Lord? Well, if God gives us the power, some people more than others, the power to get wealth, He wants that wealth used for His kingdom. There are those who are called into ministry, uh, you know, full-time ministry, and then there are others who are called to be full-time business people. And you know what? They're just as much in the ministry as I am. Because as God prospers their business, they take that money and they invest it in the kingdom of God and God's work goes forward. I remember reading the life of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was, um, uh, of course, uh, you know, very much in the ministry, although he never took the title pastor. He considered himself more of a businessman, but he was a full-time preacher. But he did have a man he was very close to, a Mr. Falwell. And uh, Falwell was a very wealthy businessman, but he always put so much of his money into the work of God and much of it to support the work of God through D.L. Moody's ministry. When eventually they built a new meeting hall for the ministry, they wanted to name it Moody Hall. He said, no, 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 name it Falwell Hall. Because he realized that without the uh, resources this man was giving into the ministry, the work of God at least, I mean, God's ministries, God's work, never really depends on us. We know that, right? But the idea is that, you know, when somebody is generous to the work of God, God takes that and uh, uses it. And don't you know, you cannot give to God anything what he won't multiply back to you, uh, if not in this life and the life to come. So we have to keep uh, things in perspective. If God blesses you with money, the Bible says, don't set your heart on it. Don't set your heart on it. Use it for the Lord's glory. So true spirit-filled believers never let their money become an object of worship. However, now James has turned to those people who are worldly, unsaved, ungodly people who do worship money and are trading eternal riches in heaven for the fleeting riches of earth. And folks, that is a terrible trade. And Jesus himself said it in Matthew 16, verse 26. He said, What would it profit a man if he somehow could gain the entire world but lost his own soul? What would be worth your soul, Jesus said? If you could be the king of the world, okay? If, if you owned every square foot of this planet and were bringing in a trillion dollars a year, that's a lot of money. How long could you really enjoy it? 40, 50, 60 years maybe? What if you could enjoy it for 150 years? Is that worth your eternity? And yet people are making that trade every single day of their lives. And so now James zeroes in on these folks through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, come now, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Guys, I don't have to tell you this, you know it. 
what the people of this world, I'm talking about the unsaved people of this world, especially the rich, don't understand, is that a day of judgment is coming and will lead to an eternity of misery. You know, we talk about this, right? If you're a Christian on this planet, this is as bad as it's ever going to get for you. If you're an unbeliever on this planet, this is as good as it's ever going to get for you. And I'd rather have this be as bad as it's ever going to get and the best of waiting for me. Okay, but um, one of the things we see in both the Old and New Testaments is the constant warning, obviously, by prophets, apostles, and of course, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, admonishing, uh, pleading almost with us people not to trade eternity in heaven for a few years of materialism, partying, and laughter here in the earth. Terrible trade. Luke 6.25, Jesus said, Woe to you who are full. Now, for you shall hunger. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. We see this admonition driven home by Jesus also to his disciples in Luke chapter 16 as he talked about a rich man and Lazarus. Turn to Luke 16, if you will. Of course, you all know the story, but I wanted to bring it out again tonight because this is exactly what we're talking about. Two people who had different lots in life on the earth and when they died, it was completely reversed. Okay? We won't read the whole thing, but let's pick it up in verse 19. Luke 16, verse 19. And guys, by the way, this is not a parable. Okay? In parables, people are never named. A certain man went here or did that. This is a real, <laughs> a real situation. Okay? There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously at the best food every day but there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of source who was laid at his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table moreover the dogs came and licked his sores pretty pathetic scene right and so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom now what's not stated directly but we obviously know it's true is that the uh, the beggar, Lazarus, was a believer, and the rich man was not a believer, all right? So the beggar died, Lazarus died, and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's in the center of the earth where believers used to go before the, Jesus died for their sins, of course, on the cross. But before the cross, believers, you know, Moses, Abraham, Isaiah, and so on, David, they went to this place of paradise in the center of the earth called Abraham's bosom. Place of, it was a paradise, but a prison, because they couldn't leave. Their sins had not been paid for, therefore they couldn't go to heaven. Okay, But they were comforted. It was a place of paradise. It was divided from another compartment uh, by a giant gulf, like a Grand Canyon kind of a thing. And the other side, which is still in operation today, by the way, was where unbelievers went. Now, Lazarus, being a believer, was carried by the angels when he died to Abraham's bosom. Now, let me just say this, because, well, if you haven't heard this before, when Jesus died on the cross, before he ascended into heaven, Ephesians 4 tells us, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth to Abraham's bosom and let the captives free. His blood had paid for their sins. And when he ascended, he led every one of them to heaven. Today, a believer who dies, absent from the body, is what? Present with the Lord. Okay, however, 
The other side of Hades, uh, the place of torment, is still very much in operation for all those who die without Christ. And they will stay there until after the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, when the great white throne is set up, Revelation 20, and then these will be resurrected to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, not to plead their case. The case has already been decided. They're guilty. This is the sentencing phase. Uh, by all the evil things they did in the earth, it will determine the degree of punishment in hell. All right. So Lazarus, a believer, dies, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So he's looking across this giant gulf and he sees way over there uh, Lazarus being comforted in Abraham's bosom. Verse 24, Then he cried, and, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And you can finish reading the entire thing on your own. But this is what we just said earlier, that Jesus, you know, this is the, the um, living illustration of what Jesus said in Luke 6.25. Some of you he's saying, uh, are full now. You laugh. You're having a great time. Life is wonderful. You're wealthy. Not a care in the world. And there are others who are mourning because of poverty or sickness or injustice or whatever it might be. But there's coming a day when that will be reversed. When those who had it very good here on the earth but didn't receive my son Jesus Christ, the Father will say, they're going to go into a place of torment, ultimately hell forever. Uh, but those who knew the Lord were poor they were persecuted whatever it might be whatever lot they had in life and by the way whatever a person suffers for the lord in this life it multiplies their rewards in heaven so it will be reversed but the language that james uses to open uh, chapter 5 is very strong when he calls the ungodly rich to weep and howl while they're still on the earth is the idea the word weep, guys, means to wail loudly. The word howl goes beyond mere lamenting and refers to, listen, shrieking or screaming. Pretty dire situation there. Uh, in the Old Testament, the prophets associated this with the wailing and shrieking of the wicked, listen, as God's judgment was being or would soon be poured out on them, even as Isaiah said in chapter uh, 13, verse 6, to wayward Israel, he said, Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is a time of judgment. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. But also, Jesus talked about the judgment coming upon the wicked in numerous places. I'll just have you turn to Matthew 13 for a minute. And Jesus is talking about his return to the earth. The tribulation period is over. Of course, it ends officially with Jesus' return to the earth to establish his kingdom and when he comes to the earth he will send his angels out to gather the righteous the believers who has, have escaped the antichrist during the tribulation period we won't be there the church is out of here before the tribulation period begins but these are tribulation saints people that got saved during the tribulation period escaped the antichrist hid out whatever and when the lord comes he's going to send his angels verse 41 
He'll send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. Now, he's already talked about how he's going to gather the righteous into his kingdom, but then all the unbelievers that are left alive when he returns, his angels will gather them, those who practiced lawlessness, unbelievers, and he will cast them into the furnace of fire where they'll be, listen, wailing and gnashing of teeth. You see, what James is trying to do, he knows that there's a day coming when unbelievers are going to be cast into hell. And when they're cast into hell, they are going to weep and wail and shriek and scream forever. But there'll be no comfort because it's over. They rejected Christ on earth, and now all there is left is a Christless eternity, right? So what James is trying to do is he's trying to get these rich people to... <laughs> wail and and mourn and shriek even now over their sins you know come to the realization that look if i don't get right with god there is an eternity of misery awaiting me hopefully that realization will dawn on them at one point Uh, they'll begin to shriek they'll begin to wail over their sinfulness now causing them to repent and receive christ while there's still time they're still on the earth rather then wait until they are cast into hell and they wail and shriek and scream and in agony for all eternity. And there's no comfort, right? I mean, it, it's just so much wiser for a person to weep and wail now over their sins for a time so they can repent and receive Christ and God forgives them than to wait until they're cast into hell where the weeping and wailing and torment is, listen, forever. And they'll have no rest or comfort ever again, day or night. So that's what he's trying to get them to do, Okay. You've heard people say when you witness to them, well, I think I'll just wait and see how it all works out. Or you want me to accept Christ, but you know, I'm going to wait and see. Hell is going to be full of people who are waiting and seeing. And now they're wailing and screaming because they had a chance, but they didn't take it. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, now is the idea, for they shall be comforted, then in heaven is the idea today is the day we a person should mourn over their sins today is the day where they stop partying laughing having a good time and they start real there was a time in our country when we first became a nation you realize that uh, the first great awakening took place in the early 1700s and the spirit of god was moving so powerfully in this country Uh, you know it was said that uh, you know, revival would break out in towns, and uh, the Spirit would come upon people so heavily that in the next town 30 miles away, people would start dropping to their knees in the taverns and weeping and wailing and, and, and repenting. It was an incredible thing to see, but God was moving. We have moved past that kind of a period in our nation's history. People are more hard-hearted than they are now. They're more unbelieving. They're less open to the things of God. You see it every day. You work with people, right? But there's fruitful soil out there to sow the seed of the word. The yield is not going to be as great as it once was. But there are fertile hearts out there that that once you sow the seed of the word, the gospel, God will work and God will bring conviction and repentance will happen and these people will get saved. So don't lose heart. I'm just saying we are not in a time where people, unbelievers, are very open to the things of God, like we saw a couple hundred years ago. But James said in verse 2, 
He said, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your riches are corrupted. In other words, he accuses these people of acquiring wealth by taking advantage of others. Primarily the poor you're going to, is the idea you're going to see. But again, again, guys, money isn't evil or corrupt in and of itself. But listen, it is seen in the eyes of God as being corrupt if it's acquired through evil and corrupt practices, okay? In the sense that, you know, it wasn't earned honestly. It was stolen or it was extorted or uh, somebody died for you to have it or whatever it might be, you know, that kind of a thing, okay? Uh, so I do believe James is, is, is really kind of looking at when he says that your riches are corrupted. Well, in, in the eyes of God, I, I, I believe he's saying that, look, in the eyes of God, because the way you've gotten the, your wealth, God sees it as corrupt. But listen, here's something interesting. The Greek word that James uses for corrupted is the word sepo. sepo. Now, it only appears here in the New Testament, the only time it's ever used. So we don't really know from New Testament uh, how it's used in other places. We don't have any other places. But in um, extra-biblical Greek, in Greek writings uh, that are outside the Bible, this word is used. Let me read to you what one uh, uh, scholar said on this. He said, and I quote, In extra-biblical Greek, sepa was used to describe rotten wood, decayed flesh, and rotten fruit. James indicts the wicked rich for uselessly hoarding food, meat, grains, fruit, etc., that would inevitably rot. Like the rich fool in our Lord's parable, Luke 12, we saw that last time, they believed their hoarded food would, would allow them to take their ease, eat, drink, and be merry for years to come. But in the end, it would only rot and be of no use to anyone, end quote. And so James is denouncing these rich people for putting their hope for the future in hoarded food. Hoarded food. Things that wouldn't last, the very thing Jesus warned us against. Turn to Matthew 6. You know, Jesus warned us about this very thing. Laying up for ourselves things on the earth, riches and treasures, things that really can't last. He said in Matthew 6, starting with verse 19, he said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, whatever that means, okay? Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So really, the focus of your life, what you're working hard to acquire, tells us where your heart is at. Um, we, we can't see into a person's heart, but we can see what they love, what they're devoting their life to, and it tells us really what's in their heart. A person who loves the Lord and has the Spirit of God inside, they're going to want to use their life to, to lay up treasures in heaven. They're going to want, want to see people saved. They're going to want to preach the gospel. They're going to want to serve uh, in church, in the Sunday school, or some other ministry, because their whole heart is to see God glorified, and, uh, you know, the kingdom of God built. But if somebody is only living to lay up for themselves earthly goods, material things, well, it says that their heart is really not with the Lord. Um, it's with this world. But guys, also, when James talks about them hoarding foodstuffs as an investment in the future, he also includes the hoarding of fine garments. The Greek word used here refers to outer garments, like robes or um, cloaks or outer coats is the idea look we've said this before in the ancient world they didn't have um, stock markets or money markets to invest their money in so they would invest in gold silver precious stones and often these very fine high-end fabrics and uh, outer garments 
uh, often beautifully embroidered garments and uh, sometimes adorned with jewels. Uh, and they would lay these up, you know, as an as a investment for the future. But as Jesus already pointed out, you know, these things were susceptible to moths. Uh, often the moths would get in there and you wouldn't even realize it. And years later, when you pulled the thing out, maybe to sell to, you know, get money for your retirement, the thing was all eaten up, okay? And, and James is picking up on it and going, you know, what is the point of laying up moth food, okay? What's the point of laying up moth food? You know, you, you rich, you, you think you can take these things and hoard food and hoard garments. The food rots uh, and decays. The garments are moth-eaten. In other words, your riches on this earth are transitory. Don't lay up for yourselves riches on earth, but use your money now to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. But, but guys, I do see, though, a spiritual application in this as well. When James says, your garments are moth-eaten, I believe he could also have in mind the idea that although they adorn themselves with the finest clothing money could buy, in the eyes of God, they were bankrupt spiritually. In other words, they were spiritual paupers. It reminds us very much of Jesus' condemnation of the church in Laodicea. I'll just read it to you out of Revelation 3, verse 17. Here's a church that was wealthy. They were a very wealthy church. But that's all they were was an earthly, wealthy church. They, they had a lot of material things, but spiritually, um, well, Jesus wasn't even in their midst. He was knocking to get in. He said, you know, I'm knocking at the door. Anyone who opens the door to me, I'll come in uh, to your heart and have fellowship with you. So uh, I, I, I see, without getting off the subject, I see the church of Laodicea representing the uh, liberal church around the world, but in America especially. A lot of these liberal churches are very wealthy churches, but Jesus is not there. They don't believe in the atonement. They don't believe in original sin. They don't believe in literal hell, many of them. Uh, many don't even believe Jesus is the Son of God, who was sinless, who was virgin-born, who rose bodily from the dead. These are churches who are Christian churches in name only. And they're very wealthy, many of them. Don't realize how poor they are spiritually, though. Jesus indicts them he says in revelation 3 17 because you say i am rich have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know don't real you don't realize here's how god sees them that you're wretched miserable poor blind and naked it's amazing how deceived we can be it's amazing how deceived people can be thinking they're right with god i go to church i work in the food pantry i do this and that and not realize that they do not have a relationship with the Lord. But once again, guys, I see in James' words a warning of coming judgment. The first six verses of this um, chapter, the Lord gives some very, excuse me, the Lord, well, the Lord through James, but James gives some very stern words of condemnation. I mean, he is not pulling any punches. You know, when a person's heart is that hard, where they're so in, wrapped up in their wealth, you know, and they're so living for this life. Sometimes a soft word won't cut it. A good, strong, swift kick in the butt is what they really need, you know. In, in the Old Testament, we have two leaders, Ezra and Nehemiah. When the people came back from the Babylonian captivity, part of the reason they were taken into captivity was because, among other things, uh, God's people intermarried with pagan women. And they're their pagan wives led their hearts away from the Lord. And God told them what was going to happen if they ever did that. 
So God sends them to Babylon for 70 years. He brings them back. And what do they do? They get right back into the same practices. Well, Ezra was the priest at this time. And Ezra saw what was going on. He was heartbroken. He sat down on a stoop somewhere and just wept. Well, the people loved Ezra and they came and said, well, why are you weeping? Because you're not obeying God. The very thing that you went into judgment 70 years ago, you're doing the same thing. And he was just weeping and heartbroken. And the people said, you know what, don't, don't weep, Ezra. We'll, we'll make it right. We'll, we'll knock it off. Praise the Lord, right? He was a velvet glove kind of a guy, okay? What, 90 years later, Nehemiah shows up. And the people have gotten back into these practices. And when Nehemiah sees what's going on, what does he do? Grabs them by the beard, slaps them around, pulls their hair out, says, knock it off. And they okay, we'll, we'll knock it off. He scared them straight, okay? Both leaders were effective, both different. Uh, sometimes very difficult, um, spiritually dull times require not a velvet glove approach, but an iron fist approach. Not that I would literally ever do that, but I'm just saying. Sometimes we need to... Not speak in soft terms. Sometimes we need to rebuke publicly to their face. And James is doing that. He is really pulling out the stops. And he is really letting them have it. His words are very harsh. But sometimes we need to be harsh to get people's attention. But, but I see in, in his harsh statements, uh, words of warning of coming judgment. A time the rich won't be able to buy themselves out of, no matter how much money they possess. That's the problem with wealthy people. They often think they can, and many times they can, buy themselves out of problems. Not have to suffer consequences for their actions. they got enough money to buy their way out. There's coming a day, James says, when your money is not going to be worth anything. You won't be able to use it to buy your way out of God's judgment. Proverbs 11, verse 4 uh, says, riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death or judgment. You know, the Bible predicts a day of judgment that is coming, again, when a person's riches will be worthless and unable to buy them out of God's wrath, just like it was in Israel before the Babylonian invasion. Turn to Ezekiel 7. And of course, this is just one of many. I mean, the prophets were screaming for years warning Israel to turn from their sins. Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel uh, was a, an exilic prophet. So he was pre-prophesied when they were in Babylon. But um, in Ezekiel 7, verse 19, this is talking about now God's judgment coming upon the people. The people had put so much stock in wealth, prosperity. They will throw their silver into the streets and their gold will be like refuse. Their silver and their gold will not be able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They will not satisfy their souls nor fill their stomachs because it became their stumbling block of iniquity. So money is good if you use it right. If you use it to buy food and provide your needs and, uh, and give some to God for his work, great. But when money becomes a God, it is worship. God says, well, that's enough. At one point he says, enough judgment comes and then all the stuff people are worshiping you know if god begins to pour his judgment upon america and i'm talking about a combination of enemies attacking uh, natural catastrophes do you think people 
Do you think that their Rolex watches or their bank accounts or their fancy cars, do you think that's going to mean anything? Nothing. Now, sometimes God has got to purge a society of their idols before they turn back to him. Sometimes he has to pry out of people's hands uh, their wealth that they put all their hope and trust in that they might see clearly that he alone is God. I mean, wasn't it C.S. Lewis who said, God whispers in our pleasures and shouts in our pain? Sometimes he has to shout because we're so dull of hearing. I hope that's not America. But um, it wasn't Israel's day. They had begun to worship gold and silver and had gold and silver idols. And God says, you know, my judgment's coming. Then you're going to throw that stuff out in the street. It's not going to be worth anything. But it would be too late because you made these things your gods and now I'm going to judge you. And listen, when the wicked are judged and removed from the earth, they will stand before God in what I'll call, picking up on James' language, moth-eaten, filthy rags of their own self-righteousness. Mark in your Bibles, Isaiah 64, verse 6, where God talks about unbelievers standing before him who are not clothed in the pure white robes of Christ's righteousness, but stand there in front of him in the filthy uh, rags of self-righteousness, and the Hebrew is pretty graphic, used menstrual cloths is the idea. A woman during her period was considered defiled with a flow of blood. She was considered defiled. And God picks up on that and says, those who have not received my son, who think that they're going to stand before me and plead their case and they're going to convince me that they're good people and that I should let them into heaven are in for a rude awakening. They're going to stand before me clothed in the filthy rags of their own self-righteousness, defiled as sinners, instead of the pure white robes of Christ's righteousness, which every one of us who have received Christ, we have put on. And someday uh, that will be visible when we stand before the Lord. I think Paul's words to Timothy are very important at this point. 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 to 19, where Paul said to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in, living, in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to use your money for good things. You only have it for a short time on the earth. Use it to invest in the things of God, which you'll have eternal rewards waiting for you in heaven someday. But let them do good, that they, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life, is the idea. But listen, James isn't quite finished with the graphic language he's using to condemn these uh, ungodly folks that have made God, uh, money their God. He says in verse 3, he goes on, your gold and silver are corroded. The Greek is rusted, rusted. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Look, gold and silver were the most common means of money back then. And have any paper money based on nothing. Worthless pieces of paper that have a promise uh, backing them. We promise the government, take our paper, we, we promise we'll honor it with, you know, whatever. That's a promise that's probably going to end soon. But, uh, but back then they had real hard 
uh, wealth. They had gold, silver, uh, which they used for money. And uh, when it says that their gold and silver were corroded, of course he's speaking figuratively, because uh, gold and silver don't rust. He's speaking figuratively, all right? Uh, he is driving home one more time, guys, the idea that in the day of judgment, all the gold and silver the rich have laid up for themselves, thinking that this is going to be a hedge against the uncertainty of the future, laid it all up for their retirement years, not realizing that, as we saw in Luke 12, uh, the man who took all of his crops and said, look, I don't have barns big enough to hold all my crops. I'm going to build bigger barns, and then I'll have enough goods laid up for many years. I can take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. God said, you fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. You're going to die tonight. And then who are you going to leave all these things to that you've worked so hard to acquire? But the idea he is driving home once again is that on the day of judgment, all the gold and silver the rich have laid up for themselves on the earth is going to be useless. As if it had, all, it had all rusted away. Look, the absolute worthlessness and inability of earthly riches to deliver people from God's judgment is, listen, a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. Turn to Zephaniah. Let's see who knows where that is. <laughs> is that in the Bible? Yeah, it's in there. Zephaniah. Listen to what God said to the prophet Zephaniah. In chapter 1, verse 18, he said, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, because they were all into idolatry. For he will make speedy rid riddance of all those who dwell in the land. How about Isaiah 2? I know you know where that is. Isaiah 2, verse 20. And these are just two of dozens we could look at. Isaiah 2, verse 20, In that day a man will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made each for himself to worship, to the moles and bats, to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the crags and the rugged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And of course you can read Revelation 6. Uh, that the Lord is going to shake this world until everything that can be shaken and destroyed will be. And people will be so terrified at the judgment of God, they're going to hide in the clefts of the rocks and everywhere they can find a place. Because hide us from the wrath of the Lamb, they're going to say, who is able to stand before Him? Is the idea. Someday the Lord is going to shake this earth mightily. Back to James chapter 5, verse 3. He said, Your gold and silver are corroded. And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Now, certainly, guys, it's not wrong to lay up money for your retirement. I mean, we've talked about, I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, okay? It's foolish to do that but not lay up for yourself anything in heaven. That, that There's a balance, okay? But it's certainly not wrong. The Bible never condemns this. It's not wrong to lay up money for your retirement, or to leave to your kids or grandkids when you die. In fact, uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 13, verse 22, a good man does leave an inheritance to his children's children. So that, that's a good thing. Acquiring and saving money isn't sinful. Listen, unless you acquire it by ripping others off. That, that's the idea here, okay? Then all you're doing is storing up wrath. You, you think you're storing up treasures on the earth? 
But if you've gotten those, that money by, by stealing and, and cheating people, what you're really doing is you're laying, up, you're laying up wrath or judgment for yourself in the day of judgment. Turn to Romans 2. Because uh, Paul talks about this. I mean, not just the rich particularly here, but they're, they're included. But uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, here's the thing. Earlier, Paul said, look, grace is a wonderful thing. God gives people grace, time to repent and receive Christ. It's a two-edged sword, though. I mean, if you accept God's grace, and I mean, I, I know somebody that came to Christ, they were 100 years old. Wow, okay. God gave this person 100 years of grace. And right before they died, they accepted Christ. Wow, that's cutting it close. Because here's the problem with that. Sure, we all like to think that God will give us a lot of grace, maybe a long time to receive Christ. But here's the thing. Every day you don't receive Christ and live in sin, you're also storing up judgment in the day of judgment. Because the more sins you have, the more you're going to be judged for, right? So if God gives you 100 years and you die an unbeliever, wow, that's even more punishment waiting for you in hell. And this is the idea, right? I mean, you know, the minute you receive Christ, the blood of Christ has paid for all of your sins. And no sin is ever held against you ever again. It's all under the blood. But for those people who are playing games, and look, James is saying for you wealthy people, you know, you're laying up for yourselves treasures on the earth. And some of that, if you're good people and you're saving some for your retirement and some for your kids and grandkids, no problem. Using the rest for God, great. But if you're getting that wealth by ripping people off, cheating people and so on, all the wealth that you're laying up, there's nothing more than judgment being laid up for the day of judgment. Now, one more time, James 5, verse 3, out of the NLT. He said, your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This treasure you have accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. I do think that there are many wealthy people who are honestly and sincerely deceived. If they believe in God, they believe their wealth is a sign that God approves of their life. He's blessing me with money. Why would he do that if I'm not living a good life? Even though they don't know Christ, they've convinced themselves of this. But what they don't realize is, first of all, as James said in uh, verse 3, he said, you have heaped up treasure in the last days. How, how wise is it? <laughs> as Christians now, we know Jesus Christ is coming back at any time. I mean, the signs are all there that his coming is near, right? How foolish is it, knowing the signs and knowing that his, it's all pointing to his soon return, for a person to just live the rest of their, live whatever time is left to invest in the things of this world. James is saying, you know, you're heaping up treasures in the last days. What good is it? This is not a time to lay up for yourself treasures on earth. Use your money to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven is the idea. Verse 4. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Guys, back then there were really only two classes of people, the rich and the poor. There was no real middle class, okay? It was the rich and the poor. 
and the poor depended on getting paid for the work they did at the end of each day so they could have money to buy food and other necessities uh, for their families. I mean, this was a common practice in those days, to pay workers at the end of each day for the work they had done. Even Jesus brings this out, mentions this in the parable of the landowner in Matthew 20. You don't have to turn to it, but I'll just read you uh, one verse, verse 8, uh, where he touches on this principle. He said, So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to the, his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. So the, the work day was over. And Jesus said, you know, he was just picking up on a common practice where the landowner told his steward, the guy that managed his affairs, look, call the workers in and give them their wages. That was a common practice back then. In fact, to purposely withhold a worker's wages and not pay them at day's end, well, that was forbidden by God in the law of Moses. In Leviticus 19, verse 13, we read, You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him, the wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. So when a guy finishes working for you that day, you pay him. You don't say, well, come back in the morning and I'll give it to you then. Uh-uh. God says that's sin. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether one of your brethren or one of the aliens who is in your land within your gates. Each day you shall give him his wages, and not let the sun go down on it, for he is poor, and has set his heart on it. He needs that money, lest he cry out against you to the Lord, and it be sin to you. God is saying, look, don't, if you, somebody works for you, and, and, and they do a day's work, God says, don't withhold their wages, give them their money. They need that to live, they, they're looking forward to that, they have to buy food for their families and so on. And if you don't, and they crowd to me, you're in big trouble, pal. God is saying, basically, all right? Because you're messing with me now. Okay, they're crying to me. You owe them money. You're not giving it to them. I'm going to hold you accountable. And we see this practice condemned in other parts of God's word. I'll just give you a couple other ones. Jeremiah 22, verse 13. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice who uses his neighbor's service without wages uh, and gives him nothing for his work. So that guy says, look, you're in trouble. You take advantage of people like that. And here's one that you may not have thought of in this regard. Romans 13. In fact, why don't you turn there? Romans 13. I'm going to condense verses 8 and 9. All right. There's a lot of Christians who misinterpret Romans 8. Excuse me, 13 verse 8. Paul said... Romans 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything. A lot of Christians believe, and I've been asked this over the years, that, that must mean that they are not allowed to borrow money from a bank to buy a house. Okay? They interpret that to mean, owe no one anything. It means, I can't borrow money from a bank to purchase a house. I don't believe that's what Paul has in mind. I believe he has in mind the very thing we're talking about. When he says, don't owe anybody anything. He's, what he's thinking of is, if somebody does a job for you and you owe them money, don't make them wait for it. You pay it to them. Don't owe them anything. Once they have fulfilled their part of the agreement, they've done work for you, now you pay them. Don't owe them anything. And he was no doubt picking up from what we have read in the Old Testament law. He goes on to say in Romans 13, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Well, that wouldn't apply to a bank, okay? 
The whole idea is, look, if you work for somebody and you, you would want them to pay you right away, right? Then you don't owe somebody money who does work for you. Everybody, treat you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Do to them as you would want them to do to you, is the idea, okay? Back in James chapter 5, verse 4, he said, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. One commentator explains, he said, and I quote, Sabaoth is an untranslated Greek word which derives from the Hebrew word tsaba, meaning hosts or armies. The phrase, the Lord of Sabaoth, describes God as commander of the armies of heaven. He is the one who hears the cries of the defrauded poor and will call his angelic I wouldn't want to be the guy that God calls his angelic armies to go sick. You know, go sick that guy. You know, get after him there. Uh, will call his angelic armies to act in judgment. A frightening judgment awaits those who unjustly hoard the wealth they rob from the poor. Their victims will cry out for justice to the righteous judge and he will not disappoint them, end quote. Bottom line, give people what you own. All right, verses 5 and 6, You, James says, You have lived, talking to these wealthy, ungodly people, you have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Now, as I said earlier, there were really only two classes of people in the ancient world, the rich and the poor. On top of it, there was a lot of corruption in the courts in those days. It was very common for the rich to take advantage of the poor by cheating them out of their wages. And the poor had little recourse. And even if a man did have a little money where he could afford to take his employer to court who refused to pay him what he owed him, a rich man could pay off the judge to rule in his favor. Or even worse, he could pay off a judge and the judge would accuse the worker of some wrongdoing, maybe throw him in prison. The judge would then condemn See it there in verse 6, you have condemned. That's a Greek word that means to pass sentence upon, implying to me that what James is talking about is the rich bribing uh, judges to subvert justice, taking advantage of the poor, you know, siding with the wealthy guy because he was connected, he had the money. And so these judges would then condemn or pass sentence upon the poor man and the poor man couldn't resist, couldn't fight against a rigged and corrupt legal system. Sometimes the poor even starved because uh, of a wicked employer withholding their pay. I mean, these people were very poor. Uh, they worked to earn enough money to buy bread for that day. And if a guy, um, an employer, refused to pay uh, a poor man, um, Possibly, and probably it happened. I don't know how much it happened, but sometimes the poor even starved to death waiting or trying to get their money from this uh, guy and uh, never got it and uh, died in the process. And then that's probably what James has in mind when he said you have murdered the just. The idea behind the term the just simply means a, a man who was innocent of any wrongdoing. He was innocent, okay, uh, but who had been railroaded by a wicked, rich employer and an equally wicked and unjust judge. James says he does not resist you. He can't fight you. The poor man is helpless to stop you from taking advantage of him. Well, that might be true on earth, but for every crime 
a person commits that they get away with on earth, they're going to stand before the judge of the whole universe and they will have to give an account and they will have to pay for that crime. If they stand there, apart from Christ, of course. But Jesus told us that there is a day coming when every person will stand before him and give an account. Read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. Jesus is the one judging at the great white throne judgment. I think John 5, 21 uh, the Father judges no man, the Lord said, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ will be the judge at the great white throne judgment. Every per This is for only for unbelievers now, not for the righteous. This is a judgment only for unbelievers. And they will stand before the Lord, and the books will be opened. One book will be the law of God, and they'll be judged by how many times they violated what God had said. The other book is the ledger by which every sin, crime, thought, word, and deed was written down in this ledger, right? There is coming a day when Jesus said, every criminal, every rich person will say that uh, use their money to take advantage of others. They're going to stand before me. People get upset because some people seem to be getting away with things. And they get angry with God. Why, why are you letting them get away with this, Lord? Remember the psalmist, Psalm 73? The psalmist said, you know, I saw something that almost made me stumble in my faith. I saw the wicked, they're prospering. They're having a good time. They're living to a ripe old age. they got all their kids gathered around their table. You know, they're eating well. They're, they're, they never have any adversity. Well, that's not true. But you know how we get, you know, we, we get kind of, you know, they never have a bad day, never go through any hard times. Hear me? I'm a child of God, man. I'm getting beat down every day. I'm going through adversity and struggles and heartache and everything else. <laughs> and the psalmist said, I, I almost stumbled. I almost lost my faith until I went into the house of the Lord. And then I gained perspective. Then I realized, you know what? They're not getting away with anything. They might get away with some things here on the earth, but their day is coming. Whereas a child of God, even though I'm persecuted, even though I'm going through difficult times for my faith, God is going to reward me in heaven someday beyond anything I can imagine. See, we have to keep our eyes on the eternal. We get our eyes on to the temporal and we start to waver, you know? We start saying, well, why are they blessed? Why can't I have that new car? You know, I work just as hard as them. Why, you know, why do they get to be blessed like that and not me? I don't know why. All I know is if you're a child of God, keep your eyes on the eternal because that's the only thing that matters. And I just see James saying to these people and to all people who don't know the Lord, get your life right with God now while there's still time. Mourn now over your sin repent and receive christ and be comforted then as someone has said it's better to weep with men on earth than to wail with demons in hell next week god willing and i make no promises but i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure we will finish james next week you say well what do you got planned for after james i'll let you know i'll let you know uh, you'll find out soon so uh, just pray that God will direct that we know what book he wants us to undertake next, all right? Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we realize that you have spoken harshly to many people whose hearts have been hardened through the deceitfulness of riches. And they're living like this life is all there is, but we know better. And Lord, you love them. And sometimes because they're so dull of hearing, you have to shout to get their attention. And that means sometimes they have to go through deep adversity before 
they open their eyes and realize that they're living in sin. They need you. Well, we all do. But we pray, Lord, for all of our loved ones. Maybe we have the loved ones like this. They may not be rich, but they're sure living for this world. They're sure living like there is no day of judgment coming, no day of reckoning, that this life is all there is, so they grab for all the gusto they can. Lord, open their eyes. Father, we don't care what you have to do. We know that you'll only do what you have to do because you love them. You won't ever, Lord, uh, go beyond what you have to do to make their life miserable now that they might rejoice with you in heaven someday forever. But Lord, open their eyes. Save our loved ones. Uh, bring them to you, Lord. Uh, we'd rather they weep and howl now and be comforted then than to be comforted now in their prosperity and weep and howl in hell for eternity. Lord, we thank you for your great love and mercy. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.